The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So take your Bibles, if you would, and open them to the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 8 and verse number 5. Our text verses this evening are verses 5 through 11, and our subject is living in wisdom. So let's begin reading in Scripture in Romans 8, verse number 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, He that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. Our study this evening is about discernment. It's about the ability to make right decisions in our behavior and to use the Word of God as the standard by which all of our decisions should be made. Now, unfortunately, that, this happens to be an area that many Christians are just woefully deficient in. Uh, their decisions are not often good decisions. Choices that are made are many times not very good choices for the growth and the success of that Christian in, uh, in his life for the Lord. Now, the last time I gave you an introduction to the subject, and I showed you that because we took this text and I showed you that because the Holy Spirit lives in the Christian, we have the ability to determine right from wrong. We have divine power that's in us that enables us to make right choices. And this is proved by the text where Paul contrasted the carnal mind with the spiritual mind. He said the carnal mind is hostile to God. It's not subject to understanding the law of God, whereas the spiritual mind has been renewed, it's been changed so that it's no longer controlled by the flesh or the constraints of the flesh. Uh, the spirit, or the, rather the believer, has the spirit of Christ in him, and that's what changes everything about him. And I showed you from the text that logically it's impossible to have a category of carnal Christians because Christians are subject to the law of God. Christians can understand God's law. They're not hostile to God. They are receptive to the teachings of Scripture. And so if a person is not those things, then he is, as Paul describes in verse number 9, that he is none of Christ. He's not really a Christian. He doesn't belong to him. And there are two major areas in which a Christian must be discerning. First, he must discern the difference between right and wrong in his moral choices. And then secondly, he must discern the difference between right and wrong in his theological choices or we might say, in his choices of the faith, that is, what are we to believe about the Word of God? What doctrines are to believe? Well, what side do we take? And when are we right and wrong 
about doctrine. Now, the difference between truth and error is critical because, as Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians, if we don't rightly discern our doctrine, then in chapter 4 there, he says we're going to be tossed to and fro with all the different winds of doctrine, and pretty much what we'll do, we'll swallow anything that comes along. So we have to be very careful about what we believe and be discerning about it. Use wisdom that God gives us through His Spirit. Now, in tonight's message, we're going to talk about the first of these areas of discernment, this concerns our moral choices. And the next week, uh, towards the end of the next uh, message, towards the end of that message, we're going to start dealing with doctrinal discernment. Now, as I mentioned last time, if you remember, the days are gone when being called a Christian practically, practically guaranteed that uh, you possessed a certain kind of morality. Uh, people pretty much had an idea of what Christians were to look like and to live like and we were generally agreed on Christian principles, and there were certain things that Christians would very strictly avoid. For example, uh, you didn't used to have discussions about whether Christians would drink alcohol. I mean, that was considered to be wrong, and so Christians would just stay away from that. Um, we wouldn't indulge in that. When the motion picture industry got its start back in, oh, I guess maybe 20s or 30s, Christians decided then that's not something that we want to be involved in. And you might not know this, but even back that far, back as far as the 20s, they were making pornographic films. And uh, the industry started to regulate itself because there was such a, a public backlash against it. And so they kind of toned things down. But I would say that any of you that have been to movies lately, uh, you can see that every part of public decency has eroded away. And now the film industry has gone back to what they were before. Christians used to stay away from that, but no longer do Christians do it. Now, just to give you an idea of how confused that people are about morality, it's necessary today for me to ask prospective members of the church questions that I didn't have to ask before. Uh, years ago, there were certain things you, you didn't have to tell people, you didn't have to deal with, but that's a different story now. Uh, when young couples come to the church, uh, I have to ask them, I have to say, are you married? Are you living together without marriage? A few years ago, there was a really nice couple that came to church, and they were lost. They, they came into the church. They heard the Word of God. They believed, and so they said that they wanted to become members of the church. And I knew that I had to be careful about this, and so I took them into the office, and we were talking about it, and I just had to ask, are you married? And I found out that they weren't married. They were living together. And they didn't recognize this. They, they didn't recognize that this is not what Christians ought to do. When you get saved, you ought not to do that. And they, they, were, uh, they had a different morality about them, and so they didn't realize that this was a problem. And so I had to tell them, I, I can't baptize you unless you make a change, unless you do something different here. Either you're going to have to get married, or one of you is going to have to move out of the house. And uh, so we talked about that, and they said that they were willing to, to make a change. Now, I know that many pastors wouldn't even ask a, a couple about that. They would go ahead and they would baptize them anyway and they would just deal with it later. But as I explained to them, what I would have to do if the church took you in and baptized you as members and you're living in fornication, then we'd just have to turn around and kick you out of the church for living in fornication. So I can't baptize you until you do something about this. Well, pastors that don't preach repentance and 
probably wouldn't have too much trouble with it. Uh, they, don't, they would just leave it alone, not say anything about it. But you go back to the Scriptures and you find that John the Baptist, before he would baptize people, he said, you've got to show me that you truly repented. He said, bring forth fruits, meat for repentance. In other words, he's tell them, telling them, you need to change. There has to be something different about you. If you have truly become a Christian, you need to be something different. So this couple had a decision that they were facing. Uh, their living situation was wrong, but they did want to be baptized. And so this question of whether they were going to follow the Lord and be obedient was actually a defining moment for their faith. Was their faith real? Were they actually saved? And that was a great test because as soon as they found out what they were supposed to do, they wanted to do it. They wanted to be baptized. They wanted to become members here in fellowship with God's people. But they had another problem, and that is they'd been living together for so long that their financial lives had become intertwined. They had house payments, they had car payments, and as it turned out, neither one of them could afford to, to live on their own. So they've got a real problem here. Not only that, but they had also, they had planned to get married, but that was off in the future, and they'd already spent thousands of dollars on this wedding that they were going to have. So all around, there are all kinds of, of problems here, but they were saved. And they wanted to be baptized. So what did they do? I married them. They, they came into my office. We got a witness, brought them in, and I married them. And then several months later, they had their big church wedding right here at the church. And uh, invited all the people, and they went through all of that. And I'll tell you, those were some folks that I felt very good about their confession of faith, about their conversion. They wanted to do what was right. They believed in the Lord and they obeyed what they knew what was right. And my point here is to tell you that there are issues that we have to deal with that we didn't have to deal with before. People used to know that Christians don't live together without being married. Well, just a few years ago, there was another couple that came to the church and they had the very same problem. They said that they were saved and they wanted to become members here, but they were unwilling to get married. And so that ended their prospects of being members of Berean Baptist. And I'm sure they found a church somewhere that gladly took them in. So I just have to ask questions that I never had to ask before. It used to be when people got saved, they knew enough. They were supposed to throw away all their beer bottles, clean out the refrigerator, get rid of all of that, take down the wine rack, stop using bad language, stop going to places that they used to go, do something different. And that's what happens to a person when the Holy Spirit regenerates his heart. He makes him new, makes him different, gives him different desires, makes him want to live in a different way. And so that's uh, what God expects from us. He changes us to where we think differently. But we have to ask questions today because sometimes people just don't honestly know anymore. I think of a, it's because Christians have adopted the ways of the world so that when lost people observe Christian lives and you go to them to give them the gospel and uh, you, say, you, you tell them you need to be saved and they're thinking all the time, well, what really needs to be different about me? What, what needs to be different? I mean, I, I've seen how Christians live and what they do. Do I really need to change something? Well, there needs to be a change. That's because there are moral questions to face and this is part of deciding the difference between right and wrong. We need to be able to determine what is right and what is wrong. So I'm going to try to help you out a little bit with this tonight. If you've got a moral decision that's facing you, uh, we're going to talk about some questions tonight that you can ask, and you might want to hang on to this listening sheet and refer to it when you need it. 
Now, two weeks ago when we talked about this subject, I said, well, we're going to return to some, some very elementary things. So you're, you're not going to get any deep doctrine here tonight. The, these are some things that you just ought to know and you ought to pay attention to. Whenever you have a moral question, here's some things that you can apply to find out what to do. Now, the first thing is one that I think that all of you would know that I would uh, use as the first means of deciding the difference between right and wrong. The first question that you would need to ask is, is it clearly condemned in the Bible? Is it clearly condemned in the Bible? Uh, let me say first that if it's clearly condemned in the Bible, and you don't respect the Bible, and you don't respect the authority of the Bible, then it's not going to make very much difference to you. And if you find yourself in that place tonight, which I hope no one here does, but if you find yourself in a place where you don't respect the authority of the Bible, then you might as well stop right here, put up your pencil, your paper, take your, take your earphones out or whatever, your, your, your hearing aids out, all those kinds of things. Just, just go ahead and pack up now because what I have to say is not going to help you. The Bible is the standard. That's what tells us the difference between right and wrong. That's what tells us what is evil. That tells the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. It tells the difference between the ways of God and the ways of Satan. The Bible is that standard. Now, no matter what you think or anybody else thinks, the Bible is right and you can't argue with the Scriptures because if you do, you're going to find yourself arguing against God and arguing against God's authority. And so we have to get that out of the way first, that the Bible is the law. The Bible is the thing that we live by, and to go against it is to be wrong, and you're going to have to pay the penalty if you don't comply to God's law. And so we start with that. Is it clearly condemned in the Bible? And there are many things that you might want to do that all you need to do to find out, should you do this, is go to the Scriptures, read them, and there the answer is going to be clear in black and white what you should do. Just spend some time reading the Bible. Now, if you want to look at the authority of the Bible, just take some time to read the 119th Psalm. 176 verses there that tell you all about the authority of the Bible and how good the Word of God is for us. And if you find yourself disagreeing with Psalm 119, then we're just, you know, really done here tonight. So my purpose here this evening is not to provide you with a list of things that you shouldn't do. I, I'm not here just to, to go down a list of things that you shouldn't do. And I could do that if you wanted me to. We're not going to spend our time doing that. But I do want to show you some examples from the Scripture that there are lists that are very clear that says here are things that you should not do. Now if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Galatians chapter 5, here we have one of Paul's lists. In fact, this chapter is good for list of things that you should do. And right after these scriptures that we read, there's another list of things that you should do. So Paul had his list. Galatians chapter 5 and verse number 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, Wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I, as, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, if you'll look at that list, you'll see most of the things there you understand. Maybe some of you don't. 
And that might just be because you don't understand the, some of the archaic words that are used in the King James Version. But you're smart people, and so what you can do, you can get a dictionary, and you can find out what every one of these words means. Now, I actually did have a person in my office uh, some months ago who honestly did not know what adultery meant. We were talking about sin, and this person wasn't a member of the church, but they came in to talk with me, and we were talking about this, and they didn't know what adultery meant. Now, it's strange in, in our culture that we are so far away from decency that people don't understand these words any longer. What is adultery? What, what does that mean? Well, I, I can understand where people would have a, some confusion about the difference between adultery and fornication, because there is a subtle dis, uh, difference between those. But rather than talk about that kind of a difference, what I would do is I would send you to another part of the Scriptures. I'd tell you, just go back to the Ten Commandments, and there you'll find another list. And in this list it says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And adultery in that context covers all sexual sins. It covers any type. It covers marital infidelity. It covers premarital sex. It covers homosexuality and pornography and pedophilia and transvestism and even something as horrible as bestiality. Now, it's hard to imagine that there are people that would do such horrible things as that, but I was reading on a Christian website just the other day about some of the stuff that people are involved with, and folks, I'm just sorry, there are people that are not fit to live. They do some horrible things. Paul gave another list in Ephesians 5. That's just a couple pages over if you want to look there. Ephesians chapter 5 and here he writes in verses number 3 through 7, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become a saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger nor unclean person nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. So here we have another list of things that are clearly condemned. We don't need to argue about these. There, there's nothing that's written here that exists in shades of gray so that we have to say, Lord, give me some guidance here. Show me whether this is right or wrong. We don't need that. There's no need to pray about these things. You have the list. It's right here. And what we need to do is just obey what God says. Just follow the list. Don't do what these things are. Now, for a Christian, or, or anyone for that matter, because it is the authoritative Word of God, that's the thing that settles the matter for us. We're not going to be arguing about it. God's Word settles this. And Paul said, because of these things come with the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. In other words, these are things that the devil's people do. These are things that people do that are not believers in Jesus Christ, that are not truly saved. And so the conclusion that he gives, be ye not therefore partakers with them. But surprisingly, there are people that argue with the plain list. There are churches that don't respect the authority of the Bible, so they have a different morality. You find them doing things like, bringing homosexuals into the church as members, and you find them doing things, even going so far as to ordain them into the ministry. And when you see that, what you know is you have a church of Satan, not a church of Christ. Why? Because those things are clearly condemned in the Bible. They're in the list. 
These are things that are in the list. And so people that do those things, what does Paul say about them? They are none of Christ. Be ye not therefore partakers with them. So we have to have some respect for the Bible. They're just obvious things that are here. And to find them out, we just read the Bible. And many people are ignorant of these things because they don't read the Bible. They may pretend that they have respect for the Bible, but they haven't read it, and so they just assume the Bible is on their side. When it's not, so we have to read it. Well, what we don't have in the Bible is a list for every possible sin. Not every sin finds its way into the list in the Bible. Uh, The Bible's not that precise, and it's not because God has given us intelligence. God has given us a mind that we can think. And so rational thinking people can move on to question number two. Question number two is, is it similar to things that are condemned in the Bible? Now we go back to Galatians chapter 5 for just a minute. There verse number 21 says, it has this list, envyings, murder, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Now do you see that? It says, and such like. That means that this list is not the end of the list. There are some things that you shouldn't do that are like the things that are in this list. So whenever you get ready to take the leap into something that you want to do, look at the list and then say, is what I want to do anything like what's in the list? And the scripture says, stay away from that. A few weeks ago, I was listening to one of my dad's sermons from, well, it was from 1980. And... um, He was preaching and there was a warning in his sermon about smoking marijuana. That was a long time before reasonable people would think that legalizing the stuff would actually happen. Um, I think he saw saw that was coming. Uh, we, We wouldn't have thought then that we would actually be encouraging people to become deadheads. It was long before Canada elected a prime minister who made legalizing marijuana his platform. So my dad had a warning in his message, and his warning was about marijuana. He said, one of these days it's going to be legal, and what he was wondering, what would parents do? What would parents do when they're faced with this question, especially parents that smoke cigarettes? And uh, he preached against that, and uh, he said, "What's, what's a parent's argument going to be against smoking marijuana if it's legalized and cigarettes are also legalized? Well, you have to ask the question, well, what are we going to do about that? Because there's nothing about smoking marijuana in the Bible, is there? Did Moses say something about smoking marijuana? Moses never said, as far as I could read in the Bible. Now, I heard that there are some of you that have a stash in your tent. Uh, I was walking by and I smelled something strange. Or I was walking out in the field and there were pot plants out there everywhere. Well, you're not going to find that in the Bible because Moses never talked about growing marijuana. But is it like something else? Is that like something else? Well, what about drunkenness? Does marijuana have mind-altering characteristics like alcohol? A few weeks ago, I was driving on Wilfred and pulled up to a light, and I noticed that this car was coming up behind me really, really fast. And I was worried, this guy's not going to get stopped. He's going to plow right into the back end of me. Well, he pulled up there and came along beside my car. He's sitting in the other lane. And while he was sitting there, he raised a bong and drew a puff and filled the car with smoke. You couldn't even see. I couldn't even see the guy any longer. There was so much smoke. Then, it wasn't two minutes later. I'm a pretty fast driver. It's not two two minutes later, 
and I was at the corner of Commerce and Expressway, and if there wasn't another idiot that came through the intersection doing exactly the same thing. I wonder about this. Uh, where, where are the sense of people? Don't they understand these things? Well, let me ask you something, parents, those of you that, that are parents. Alcohol is legal for all intents and purposes. Uh, marijuana is legal. I mean, really, the only thing you have to do to get medical marijuana is have a hangnail. If you got that, you're okay. You can go get some. So what are you going to do when your teenagers come to you and you're a person who smokes cigarettes, you drink alcohol, and they're legal, and then your kid comes along and says, well, this is legal. Why can't I do it? Look what you're doing. Why can't I do this? Well, what does the Bible say about these things? Well, it says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. When Solomon built the temple, the Bible says there was a cloud that came down and filled the temple. Isaiah said that that was cloud and smoke, and that was the presence of the Holy Spirit was there. And here, here's kind of a thought that you might uh, uh, think about, that in Bible, tones, uh, Bible term, uh, times, rather, that uh, stoners would be stoned. Get your mind around that. Stoners would be stoned. I mean, literally stoned. So are we so dumb that we can't figure these things out? I mean, what are Christians doing with cigarettes? What are Christians doing taking drugs? Are drugs like something that's in the list that's condemned in the Bible? Yeah, we'd have to say it's like alcohol. But you're going to have a hard time arguing your kids against uh, out of the things that they want to do when you've got a fridge that's packed with beer and you take a snort every now and then. You're going to have a hard time when there's cigarettes in your purse or in your shirt pocket. Well, going back to my dad, you know, he was talking about cigarettes, and of course he made the point as he was speaking about those. He said, you know, there's a skull and a crossbones on a pack of cigarettes. That means it's poison. What kind of a fool puts poison into his body? Why would you do that? But you know, some people argue about that, and... They'll want to bring up something else. They'll say, well, what's the difference between eating red meat and smoking cigarettes? Both of them will kill you. Well, when the Surgeon General puts a skull and crossbones in the package of a hamburger and says, that's going to kill you, then maybe I'll stop. And when I do, I'll, I'll go with Lisa out to the backyard and eat weeds with her or something. So, um, Now, there's still another comparison that you can make here. Compare these things to the bad things, but also compare them to good things. Galatians chapter 5 has a list of good things, uh, 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So here's a good question to ask. Is this a work of the flesh or is it a work of the Spirit? Philippians 4.8 also has a list of good things. It says, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And remember when we looked at that scripture a, a few weeks ago that I said these are characteristics that you find in Christ? And who are you going to model your life after? You want to model it after Christ. And so if you find something that Christ would not do, then don't do it. And that's a question that you need to ask. I know that's an old catchphrase. What would Jesus do? But here's a good place where that works. Would Jesus do this thing? 
It could also be another question that needs to be asked, and that is, is this thing that I want to do, is that something that's going to glorify God? The Bible says you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And so this is what I recommend that you do. Don't walk a tightrope with these things. Don't walk on a narrow plank with these things. If there's any question at all about it, just stay away from it altogether. If you try to walk a plank on this, sometime or another you're going to find yourself falling over to the bad side of it. That almost always happens. So be careful about that. Is it like something that is condemned in the Bible? Now thirdly, the question is, does it hurt your conscience? There's an old saying, let your conscience be your guide. That is an old saying, but the Bible never quite says it that way. At least not for Christians, those who aren't Christians, and here's why that it doesn't. Titus 1 verse 15 says, Unto the pure, all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure, but even their mind and conscience is defiled. So the person without Christ, his mind and his conscience is defiled. His mind is depraved. His mind has been trained by man's inherent depravity. And a depraved mind is never going to lead you in the right direction. Now we know it's true there are some people that are have some morality about them. Not everybody does the worst things that they could possibly do, and so they do have some morality. But, and, that, and it's usually because they've been raised differently than someone else. Um, but that, that's not something, that, that's really not going to stop you from doing the things, many of the things that you ought not to do because the conscience is not really all of that reliable. It's not going to bother you unless that conscience has been renewed and trained correctly. And this is what a Christian has. He has a conscience that has been renewed, and now there are things that are wrong that stand out against those things that are right, and you just don't want to do them because your conscience bothers you over them. But that's not an automatic thing because even a Christian's conscience has to be trained to do the right thing. Listen to what Hebrews 5 says, For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, admittedly, what the author is writing about here is the difficulty of understanding deep doctrinal things that he's already that he's already talked about in the book of Hebrews, but here's something that we can apply to moral questions that Christians that have not yet been saved for very long don't know as much as those that have been saved for a long time. They're not as good at deciding these kinds of things as someone who is seasoned, someone who's traveled what we call on, uh, the road or been in the school of hard knocks. They don't know as much. Now, a good conscience is one that's in the process of being trained by the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit trains the conscience, you become more aware of sin so that when you do the wrong thing, the Holy Spirit pricks the heart and your conscience begins to hurt you. You, begin, you get uncomfortable with it. And so before you do it, the Holy Spirit's going to make you uneasy about it. And whenever you feel that kind of uncertainty that you're not quite sure, the conscience is telling you no. And it's telling you if you do this thing, you're going to regret it later. And you know what happens if you go ahead and do it anyway? Well, what happens is called chastisement. And that is the Holy Spirit training you for the next encounter with some evil that you want to do. The Holy Spirit chastens in order for you to learn what not to do. It's sort of like a dog uh, that has one of those collars. He gets too close to the electric boundary, to the fence, 
He gets shocked. And very soon he learns how far he can go and he doesn't go any further. And that's the way that God trains our conscience. You, you know how far you can go and then you have to stop because it's going to bother you if you don't. So when, you, when, when uh, your conscience begins to bother you, even if the thing that you want to do is not wrong in itself, did you know that the Bible says that it's still wrong for you to do it? That it's wrong for you? That if your conscience bothers you, then it becomes sin to you. And so you need to stay away from it. So what does your conscience say about it? The conscience speaks. And often the conscience will nag you worse than your wife. Trust me on that. Now, fourthly, fourthly is, what do mature Christians say about it? So what happens if you got the first three questions and still you're not quite sure about it? What else can you do? Well, there isn't anything wrong with going to ask people for help. Go and ask somebody. Who can help you? Well, you go to somebody that has experience. You go to a seasoned Christian and you ask them. And I can't really overemphasize the value of this because those who have been Christians for a long time, I can promise you, have made plenty of mistakes. Anybody uh, that's been a Christian for a long time, we've got this experience. We've made a lot of mistakes and we've learned some things. We, we learned the kind of things we need to stay away from. The senses are exercised by the experience that we have. And so we're able to discern good from evil. Now there's a, a Christians, there are Christians who have a lot of experience. They've already done these wrong things. They've learned consequences of bad decisions. Now things that don't bother you right now, there are older, mature Christians who hear about those things and they'll freak out. I mean, they get the heebie-jeebies when, when you tell them the things that you want to get involved with because they know that's a bad path to travel. You don't want to do that. This, this text says in Hebrews 5.14, who by reason of use, and that's talking about experience. If someone falls into a pothole and then told you how bad that experience is, why do you need to go fall in the same pothole to, tech, to check it out, to see? It's going to hurt. We can promise you that. Years ago, there was a young preacher that came to our church in Kentucky. And uh, if I remember correctly, he was a college student, and he was preaching at a youth rally. And uh, when he was preaching, he said, Here, here's what I do. I go to pornographic movies so that I can tell the young people why they shouldn't go, why, what they shouldn't see. That's not a guy that you want to ask. You don't ask him. That guy had no discernment. So what my dad did, if I, I remember this, uh, this guy was just stupid. So he just invited him to leave the pulpit and go away. Don't pick the wrong person to ask. You pick a Christian who's fortified. You pick one who's stayed in the church, who is faithful, and is walking the path that follows the Lord. That person has fallen into holes. I know that he has. As I said, that's the Christian experience. And if he's still going, and if he's still living for Christ, and if he's overcome those things, that's the kind of person that can help you. So who would you go to ask? Who do you go to ask? Philippians 3.17 says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. Mature Christians are the example to follow. So if you're a young lady, who do you want to ask? Well, you would go... To, a, to another older Christian woman, a good Christian woman. This is what Titus chapter 2, Paul says uh, as he writes this letter to Titus, he said, The aged women likewise, that they may be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they may teach the young women 
to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now that's a reminder to all of us that what we need to do in our Christian lives is to mature in the faith. And that's because there's a young generation that follows us and they need someone to look to. They need somebody that they can count on to show them the right way, so we ought to give them something good that they can follow. Just like the song says, may all who come behind us find us faithful. So Paul said in Titus 2 verse 7, in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. Which brings me to question number five. Question number five, does it hinder your influence? That is, does it hurt others' opinion of you? You know, I, I wish I had a dollar for every time that I've heard this. If I had a dollar for this, I, I'd be probably along with, with uh, Bob's plan here somewhere along the line. If I had a dollar for this, every time that a person said to me, I don't care what anybody thinks, I could pay off the church mortgage. People say this all the time, I don't care what anybody thinks. Folks, if there is a major theme in the Bible about Christian living, this is one of them. Yes, you must care what other people think. You care what other people think of you. You think about how you have influenced them. You don't want people to think the wrong things about you. And so you have to be very careful about influence. Are you comfortable that what you're doing is a good pattern for other people to follow? Could you recommend that what you do is what you would like to see other people in the church do because you know that that's the way you follow Jesus Christ? Now take your Bible, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And we want to take a look for just a minute at Paul's thoughts about influence. Does the way we influence people affect the salvation of their souls? Well, this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse number 19. He said, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. Now, I know that seems a little bit confusing at first, but let me just boil it down to this, that there were things that Paul would not do because he was, it was necessary for him to guard his life as a good example for Christ. And there were things that he knew that would be a bad example that would turn others away from God because of what he did. Now, what Paul had to do, he had to minister to Jews and Gentiles, and they had a very different viewpoint of the law. And so Paul had to use great discernment to know that when, when he was about to do something that could be taken in the wrong way. Now, let me go back to Titus 2 for just a minute. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. 
Now that's the great importance of guarding our testimony. People can stretch a small thing that you do into a great big problem that provides an excuse for their sin. And this is what people are always into. They're always into the sin comparisons. And they always want to justify their sin. Well, if he can do that, then I can do this. And if the pastor doesn't say anything about that, then he shouldn't say anything about what I'm doing. And that's one of the great dilemmas that you have in pastoring a church. And that is, you have to be a policeman for everybody to make sure that nobody gets treated unfairly and everybody comes out equally. And quite frankly, I don't have time to do that. When I preach sermons, sometimes you may think that I've got a beat on you. Oh, I found out something that you did, and so... Now I'm just going to hammer you from the pulpit. Did you know that 99% of the time, I have no idea. I have no idea. God just said, put that in the sermon and let God hammer you with it. And people just get convicted over those things. I don't have to police anybody because the Holy Spirit is quite capable of doing that job. And so if I miss something that somebody does and you do it, don't think that I'm condoning it. And don't use that as an excuse for your sin you have to be aware of what you're doing at all times and what kind of an influence that you have on people. Now, I could give you multiple examples. You know, I've been in this business a long time, uh, nearly 50 years in ministry of some sort or another, and I've seen all kinds of things. I've seen Sunday school teachers and church workers and deacons even that did questionable things, and now it's hard for them to be an influence, the right kind of influence on other people, they're just not good moral choices because of what they've done. It's like this. If a student sees your Facebook page and there he sees bad language on it, and you're a church worker, you're a Sunday school teacher, and you're supposed to be the good godly person who's to influence them and teach them what they're supposed to do, how are you going to do that? What, what moral qualification do you have to teach someone else? And what happens when you slip up like that, you can make one slip up that'll brand you for the rest of your life in that person's mind who sees it, and you have no good influence on them at all. And so what you do is you end up being useless for Christ. You've got to be careful about these things. If you're in positions of leadership, Sunday school, deacons, whoever it is, you've got to be careful about this. Pioneer workers, be very careful about this. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 9, he said, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And that word castaway, that means that Paul would lose his good influence over people that he would become useless in the service of God. And that's what happens if you don't guard your testimony. And so before you do anything, you ought to say, is this good for others? And if it's not good for others, and if that doesn't concern you, if it is, then you don't have any business being a member of this church. I mean, you, you really ought to get your thinking straight on these things, and maybe you should get out because you'd be hurting people, not helping what goes on in the church. You're hurting the cause of Christ. Well, young Christians learn by example, and so we have to be sure that we give them the right example. Well, I'm close to the end of the time for tonight, so I, I do have one more question. I didn't put it on the lesson, lesson sheet. I knew about when we would finish up here. And so we're going to take that question up next week.
And then uh, in the beginning of the message, we'll do a short review of these questions that we've been over. Then we'll come back and we'll look at that next question and then talk just a little bit in the end of that message about doctrines of the faith, discerning those. And then for the next several weeks, we're going to spend our time talking about doctrinal decisions. These are things that I think everybody needs to hear because all of us are faced with making decisions about choosing good over evil. And we need to know how to do that so as much as we can, we make the right choices. We don't want to fall into holes because we misunderstanding something. Uh, we really don't want to fall into those holes. Holes hurt. Those things hurt us. They damage us. And so it's better for us if we go around the hole rather than experience what's in the bottom of that hole. And that's what we're trying to do. We don't want to learn too much by that kind of experience. Instead, we want to just stay with the Bible and do what it says. So we'll come back. We'll return to this subject next time as we talk about moral discernment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, our, our time together tonight and for your word. Lord, very simple things that we put out tonight, and, uh, but yet things that we do need to pay attention to, things that we have become lax on. Too often we're not as much concerned about our testimony as we really ought to be. And Lord, we want to live for you that when others look at our lives, they can see something that's very different about us. Uh, a change has been made in us. And that change must be evident. If it's not there, as Paul said in our text verses, we are not of Christ. If there is no change in us, if we're ruled by the flesh and don't seek to be led by the Spirit, then we haven't yet understood what it means to really be a Christian. Lord, impress that upon us, to be careful about this, to know where we stand with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.